0: Rocket fuel inside the hidden world of what makes campaigns run. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. I am delighted to welcome to the show an old comrade in arms, Josh Handelman, who is like the insider's insider when it comes to the bread and butter of campaigns on the Democratic side. Josh, welcome. You're a fundraising guru you're a guru. That
1: is very flattering. Thank you for having me on. I think that when I started this, everyone else that, that starts in politics, I think I thought I was a fundraising guru and no one else did. I you fake I it now, till you make it, man. Yeah. I now, 17 years later, realize that I am not a fundraising guru, but do my best. So I think you're level of guru actually decreases with the more experience you have. That's wisdom. That's
0: wisdom. It's like the Don Henley line, the more I know, the less I understand. You don't see yourself that way. But to the vast legion of campaign people in the democratocracy of America, that's how they view you as a guy who knows how to make those trains. And it's interesting. One of my very favorite movies, The Right Stuff, features a scene where the astronauts, the Mercury astronauts confront the engineers, the rocket scientists. And one of the astronauts, it's Gus Grissom, but I don't want to nerd out for people, says to the engineer, hey, do you know what makes this ship go up? And you can see the scientist is thinking about giving an answer about the chemical reactions of rocket fuel. And the astronaut says... Funding. And that's the truth about campaigns too, because what we tend to focus on shows like this and in media analysis and horse race punditry and all kinds of stuff like that, that we do, what we tend to focus on is the gaudy external manifestations of a campaign. It's your town hall events and your paid media, which is a euphemism for running a lot of ads and all the other stuff that campaigns do. But the rocket fuel of campaigns is your stock in trade, what you've been doing for the last 17 years. And you have indeed been doing this for a long ass time. How have things changed? The technology has changed. How is what you do different than when you started?
1: Yeah. The technology's changed a lot and that makes your day-to-day really different. I think that what everyone probably wants to hear about is like how AI has changed it all and it hasn't really yet. I don't think we're not quite there. ChatGPT can probably write your thank you notes at this point, but that's about it. The main thing is, right, if you think about it, in 2007, 2008, when I started, we were, I think maybe I was probably the last generation of people that were still stuffing envelopes to send people to come to a fundraiser. That doesn't really happen anymore. But that was like three hours of your time stuffing 500 envelopes. And that doesn't happen. Really, the main thing.
0: And there used to be a <laughs> lot of direct mail, too. Like, that's how Carl Rove yeah, there's got st- into politics. And there's
1: still, there's, there's still plenty of direct mail. Like, to to it. Yeah, that's yeah. Still plenty of direct mail fundraising, but we don't do we don't do fundraiser invitations generally via direct mail anymore. But email's the big thing, right? Like the f- real thing that changed in the past twenty years is email. I remember in two thousand seven, the campaign I was working for a large progressive group called and said we're gonna send an email for you, and we were like, well, that's nice. We'll probably raise ten thousand dollars. Great, right? Like free ten grand that we didn't really we weren't have before, and. Yeah, they send the email and we're like, oh, cool. They sent the email. That's great. And they call the next day and they say, hey, we're going to send you the list of everyone that gave because it's, it was, this is pre-act blue, but same principle, right? They bundle money and then transmit it to you. And they send me this spreadsheet and I start scrolling and I, scrolling and I keep scrolling and I keep scrolling and I keep scrolling and I'm like, what the hell is this? And highlight on the top of the Excel sheet and go all the way down. And they had raised $202,000 in 24 hours. And it was Game-changing for the campaign. And frankly, not anything that I don't think anyone on the campaign expected was even possible. Maybe at the time we figured Barack Obama's campaign was a novelty in order to turn or the line, but not something that anyone else could do. Suddenly, this was it in front of us, and the world had changed. So I would say of, of any major tactic that's different, that for sure has changed everything.
0: And one of the things that enabled, and the Obama campaign legendarily pioneered a lot of this is that when you were in the old world of and i was still part of this world too you would say all right how are we going to raise money for handleman's campaign we are going to get a list of people who have given before and then we're going to get their addresses we're going to send them a letter we're going to invite them to come to something it's like you described it's very analog and it's also very slow and what email allows you to do is to real-time test so the obama campaign pioneered all kinds of techniques like real-time what they call ab testing i want to now raise money for handleman and i'm going to send an email and i have a list of let's call it something small let's call it 10,000 potential donors what i'm going to do is i'm going to send a test email and i'm going to send it to 500 people with this version and 500 people to that version and I'm going to see which one gets a better response. And then whichever one is doing better, I'm going to migrate everything else to that. And that's a very simplified version of it. But it seems like what happened to you in your stock and trade is all of a sudden, like we find in a lot of industries, you've got these very powerful IT enabled tools to allow you to do everything you used to do, but much faster, much more effectively, and with much more impact.
1: Yeah. And I, I think really it's just additive, right? The concept of we're going to do the fundraiser in the town with some great people that reach out to their friends and we're going to call some people and invite them to come. Like all of that still exists, right? But like free email, that's all that existed, right? And now there's this like whole new way to reach a whole lot more people while you're also doing all the things that are more analog, maybe closer to the candidate personally. That's the thing that changed everything.
0: It used to be a credo among really talented fundraisers, especially on the democratic side, all this other stuff you do is great. But the bread and butter of raising money as a candidate is call time. People want to get just a glimmer of what this is like in the third season of the wire. There's the best depiction of call time that I've ever seen in media. It's where you sit the candidate down and you might have to lock them in a room because it sucks. It's like, it's the worst I'm turning off every potential candidate in the world right now, but basically what you do is you have some enterprising, intelligent, young person like Josh, you're still young man who hands you a list. This is everyone you know. This is everyone who's ever given money to someone like you who's running for office in this neck of the woods. You call them, and if you know them, it's like, hey, cousin Mabel, you and I haven't talked for 15 years. I'm sorry that, you know, Auntie Muriel died. Would you give me $5,000? It's the worst. Is that still true? Is the bread and butter of most campaigns at most levels still, you got to get on the frickin' phone and call higher dollar donors? Or is the power of grassroots email enabled fundraising so great that it's overtaken that?
1: Yeah. I, so every campaign is different. And some people, based on where they live or their background or whatever, are going to be able to, you know, appeal to a more online audience. Right. So that certainly exists. But I'd say for everyone, Yes, call time is going to be important, but there's a lot of things your staff can do that are going to make it, they can make it both, one, more productive for you and be less miserable. Here's my best advice for candidates. You have to assume that people, especially your donors, your prospective donors, care about you and what you're doing and want you to win, right? If you come into this and you were staring at a phone and staring at Someone that you know or someone that you don't know, and you want to ask them to support your campaign. There is a way to do it that it's going to be miserable where you're like, I'm bothering someone. This is terrible. But if you look at it and say, I'm running for a reason, I'm doing something important, I stand for something important, and I'm going to tell people about it. And the way that I can tell even more people about it is by having the funding necessary to talk to people by having a staff, by running ads, like whatever else it is, then it's a necessary thing. It's a way to reach people and talk about what you're doing. And if you look at it like that, I promise it is much less unpleasant than it would otherwise be.
0: It's interesting because at the congressional level, the way this works is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is housed in the Democratic National Committee headquarters. They have a room. They have a call room. Members of Congress go over there and they sit in a cubicle. And they get on the phone and sometimes chiefs of staff do that And I've spent my share of time getting on the phone and making phone calls to try and raise money and it's interesting because you do see politicians who are just naturally freaking good at this because of what you just said because they have an assumption that anyone they're calling for maybe they're just naturally good schmoozers but they have an assumption that there's nothing awkward about this it's like people who are really good at going to singles bars you know if those things still exist anymore maybe it's all been overtaken by tinder but it's like they're like look we all understand what we're about we all understand why we're here so i'm not embarrassed at all i'm calling you i want some money you know who's really good at this Kirsten Gillibrand, when she was a member of the House, she was so comfortable doing this exercise that I'm not saying that was the reason that she was originally like selected as a replacement to, to become this. But I'm telling you, like that ability at the next level to to do what it takes. It's a factor. It's a political skill.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm a, I've always been confused. It's a public job that you're running for, right? And that you need to go and get people to vote for you. And in order to get people to vote for you, you need to have things that allow you to do that, right? And would all of those things cost money. So in that sense, like to say that I wanna run for office and have a great campaign about the issues I care about, that I never wanna talk to anybody about how about the people that are Talk to people that are going to invest in my campaign and have, and I think because I'm running therefore I get to go and talk to people about, I have the resources to go and talk to people about all the things that I want to do. That's not reality, right? That's I want dessert with no dinner, which is not a thing, right? Let's take a break. We'll be right back.
0: It is interesting because some politicians are so naturally comfortable at this, and yeah. so good at it that they literally can't understand why everyone else doesn't feel the same way. And Rahm Emanuel when he was the when he was in head of the head of the DCCC famously said to someone I will not name who is a Jewish member of Congress it's dude, just call up the Jewish donors and say me jew you jew give me money. Yeah. And I think what Rahm was trying to say was like find some common ground with people. Like you don't both have to share the same faith. It could be like, Hey, I'm really into movies. You're into movies too. Great. Give me money. Anyway, I want to talk for just a second, because I don't want to be a bummer about this, about the dark side of all of this. I think what is maybe undersold a little bit is, we've all focused on how our politics has become so much more negative and so much more vitriolic. And there's at least some suspicion that it's like we're running meaner ads about each other, and the media has gotten more divided. And so that's become meaner. I worry a little bit about the role of our fundraising communications, because it's the most prevalent form of campaign communications most of us get. If you're like me, listeners and viewers, you get a lot of emails. Now, look, getting emails is not all a bad thing. You know, They contain information. They frequently contain uh, entertaining videos. There's they're actually a good source of kind of campaign fodder, but they do tend to focus on what's scariest about the other side. Now, in the case of Democrats, the truth is that everything that we say about the other side is really true and really full of proof these days. And so, I'm not sure that the role of fundraising is really piling on that much. But do you worry about that? It, are you concerned about the degree to which? our fundraising appeals have become both pervasive and kind of negative?
1: Not really, this is the <laughs> best answer. Hey, and, it's and, great. I love yeah, it. No, it's like Here's why. I think that on one hand, right, are there bad actors out there for sure? But I think what those bad actors are more about is If you have an organization that isn't really adding value and you're just like putting some scary things out there, but you don't, but all of your money goes to overhead and you're not actually helping anyone, that's bad, right? Even whether that's a scam pack or something that is even approaching that, like that, that, that causes problems for sure. But just in the concept of the emails, like may seem kind of alarmist. I think you're right. Like when we're sending emails about Republicans wanting to ban abortion in a state, right? Like they do. That's the deal. And part of that is, if you look at any piece of email statistic, the number of people that are actually opening your email is pretty low. The second thing is, the people that are most concerned about this are you're going to be your highest possible information voters and donors that do open every email. So they but know you, this you, stuff already. They know this stuff anyway. No. It's, oh my God, I've, I'm reading all your emails. And, uh. I didn't know but, that Donald but, Trump
0: was a fascist moron until you yeah, said that.
1: But what I would say is, if an email is getting sent four times, it's not for you person that opens all of the right. emails and knows all this stuff already, right? It's for the person that maybe doesn't know because they are really busy and they don't think about po- they think about politics enough to be on someone's email list, but not enough to mm. think about it every single day. Number two is let's say you're if your open rates right, 10%, that means nine out of 10 people on each email are not opening the email. <laughs> so you're sending it to get because if you can get maybe that one or two extra person on the second time around to open the email and learn the information then that's great. So I think in that sense, I totally see how this is concerning for someone that is watching MSNBC all the time or consuming either piece of media on a daily basis and opens every email that someone sends them, or at least looks at the subject line or whatever else. But there's a lot of people that aren't doing that. And we're trying to get to those people also, because the only way we can win or raise enough money or whatever it is is to also get to the people that are maybe marginally less paying attention to the people that are paying attention 100 of the time my general rule of all political media is i don't assume it's bad i assume it's not for me ah uh, that's interesting people, and there's a lot of people that aren't me that we need to talk to i want to
0: shift focus a little bit to your most recent posting your most recent work you worked for you've worked for a lot of Fascinating politicians. You helped elect Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, which we just did a video featuring an outstanding <laughs> takedown that he performed on the Senate floor of Tommy Tuberville.
1: The honor of my life, truly. Right, like I, America is better having the world is better having him in the Senate. So.
0: Absolutely agree. And after that, you went and led fundraising for the DLCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign committee that focuses on state legislatures. That points up a very interesting kind of paradox of fundraising for these various areas of focus that we could have as a party. It's not like there's someone's, Jamie Harrison, our old friend, is not sitting atop the DNC saying, okay, here's the pie of how much money we're gonna get. Yeah. And this much goes to state legislatures and this much goes to the US Senate. In fact, everyone's kind of out there on their own. You were spectacularly successful you as Josh Handelman, leading fundraising for the DLCC. You grew revenue for the DLCC 200%. That's a, as the president would say, a BFD. At the same time, in the 2020 cycle, the party, Democrats writ large, spent seven times more on campaigns for the US House of Representatives than we did for all the state legislative races in the country and there are a lot more state legislative races. And I have argued in multiple articles on Alternate, Raw Story, and in Newsweek that this is a huge mistake. And in fact, my most recent Newsweek article argued, the era of big government is over, and that's a good thing. The fact that we now have a divided government again in Washington highlights the fact that we are going to be gridlocked. We're not going to get the gaudy legislative successes that we got in the first two years of the Biden administration. And that's great because it gives us an opportunity to strategically refocus where the action is at the state level, in the state legislatures. All right, that long soliloquy was by way of asking you, I mean, you were the person in America most responsible in some ways for making the pitch to the people who give money, hey, you know, you've only got so many dollars to spend on supporting politics and politicians that you like. Spend it at the state level, spend it on state legislatures. What was that pitch? How did you convince people?
1: Yeah. So, first, you're very kind. There's, I had a great team at the DLCC that is still there doing amazing work and continue to grow. The first thing I'd say is for worse, I don't want to say for better or worse, or for the bottom line, worse for America, right? Dobbs made it easier for sure. Donors are smart, right? I think that's the first thing you need to come into this thinking is like people are smart and rational and give to the things, or at least focus mostly on the things that, that are going to impact them, right? So before you could live in Massachusetts and figure that if you're, we in reproductive rights, the thing you should do is focus on the federal government, right? Because what it would take for abortion rights to get banned across the border in New Hampshire, I won't be in Massachusetts, but if you're concerned about your friends in New Hampshire, then what it would take for that to happen is a Republican president, a Republican Supreme Court justice that is confirmed by a Republican U.S. Senate. And so the way that you could combat that is to focus on the federal government. So you have to pick cycle to cycle, right? Whatever folks are most concerned about, sometimes that's going to be something that helps you because it's redistricting or Dobbs or whatever that's going to make it so folks need to pay more attention to state legislative races. It used to be, though, everything was at the federal level, right? Every single cycle was that. And thankfully, we're not there anymore.
0: I'm going to make my version of it. And this is just to the grassroots people out there, because I'm not talking, I'm probably talking to some big donors, which is, I mean, I think that there's now a very real-time positive story to tell. I'd be interested to see what your colleagues who are still at the DLCC Mm -hmm. do with this. But after the Democrats made a focused attempt to take control of the state houses and get unified control in Michigan and Minnesota, they already held the governorships and there was a real focused effort from you guys to say, let's get the majorities in the state houses. Democrats passed more bills in Minnesota in their first month in power Then in the last six sessions of the legislature combined, they did it on things that Democrats care about, like voting rights and reproductive rights and free school lunch and rental assistance and paid family leaves. And these are things where we're not getting it done at the federal level. And is it harder? Are you more kind of like down at the grassroots level if you have to do hand-to-hand combat state at a time, 50 states across the country? Yes, it's not. No one said that this stuff was gonna be easy. To me, this is a test of... You know do we want the headline or do we want the achievement and if you focus on the state level you're going to get the achievements and it's going to yeah it's going to happen at a level where there's not a big story about it actually given the death of state house reporting services there may not be a story about it at all but people will be better off and if that's what our values are about and that's what we care about that's where we should be putting our money
1: all the stuff you said is true. And I say, rightly, in some ways, like Governor Walls, Governor. Whitmer like getting a lot of credit for it and I think even they would say I didn't have to pass the bills that was that was the legislature right like I just had to I sat here at the end and signed it and that's right. that was my role and none of that would have happened without democratic majorities in the house and senate and Michigan and Minnesota look
0: in yeah. my own career I went from being a congressional staffer to being a state house staffer I was the yep. policy director for the democrats in the New Hampshire state senate and it just so happened that I was part of the legislature after the ACA, where we had to deal with expanding Medicaid. At the time, now U.S. Senator, then Governor Maggie Hassan, was trying to lead the effort. And we had a Republican State Senate. And we it was a really difficult dance. But, you know, it was a partnership. And I would say that the role of the governor, I suspect this is true of governors Walls and Whitmer, is that Behind the scenes, they had major hands in it. i in a very coordinated way with the governor's staff and with the house staff. And behind the scenes, we did a lot of the leg worth that made this happen. So anyway, my point is just, it works. It matters. That's my appeal to people. Focus on the state level. What's your favorite story from the DLCC?
1: I would say nothing is going to come all that close to 2022, where we flipped a whole bunch of state legislative chambers in frankly something that, that even to us was was a bit of an upset and held on to every chamber that we had already controlled for the first time since. In anyone's recent memory, I think our research team was throwing around years in which that had happened, but it was like in the 1940s, but we're not really sure maybe before that. So, so that was very cool. You know that when you win, life gets a lot better for a lot of people. And when you lose, it doesn't. Life can get a lot harder for a lot of people. And so that that's what you think about on election day when those votes start to come in and you start to see some blue on your spreadsheet. From a
0: campaign operative perspective, I've been part of some great wins. I've been part of some painful losses. And what's most <laughs> painful about a loss isn't just, ah, shit, like a sports team. It's, ah, we lost, damn it. Yeah. It's, you get to a point where y- 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 you truly believe that, people's lives will be a little bit better off if you're successful and they will be a little bit worse off if you're unsuccessful. That's what's in it. If you're in it for the right reasons, let's take a break. We'll be right back. One final thing to end on. I'm going to make you, and I want you to think about this. I'm going to make you give away your best campaign secret. You are out on your own. You're working for several campaigns now, and you're not just doing fundraising. I mean, you have decades of very relevant campaign experience at this point and you're advising people who are running campaigns. So I want to ask you what piece of advice you're going to give away some of your expertise for free on this show. Uh, free, that's sure. what we do. So I'm going to ask you in a second what piece of advice you would give to either a newly announced candidate or a newly announced campaign manager. And I'm going to give you my version of it and you tell me you tell me yours. My version I'm going to focus this on the campaign managers, the young campaign staffers who are just getting into this out there is pay attention to your budget. And by pay attention, what I mean is dig in, get a really good template from someone who's done this before or from your relevant campaign arm that's not affiliated with the DNC. So get it from the smart people, the DLC. But really sit down with a campaign manager who's used that budget before and ask them about 5,000 questions about every item that's on there and live inside the budget. Your budget is your war plan. I firmly believe that while you have to be nimble and you have to adapt tactically and you have to have all kinds of skills to win a campaign, about 80% of your win or loss is determined on that spreadsheet right there. It is your strategic war plan. And you know, Josh, you were responsible for all the inputs and the funding that goes into that. And as a campaign manager, I was responsible for the outputs. I was responsible for, what do we do with the resources that you worked so hard to win? And you either deploy them intelligently and efficiently and, you know, with maximum impact or you don't, and that's the fun part of all of this. And it's also the challenge. It's where the skill comes in. So pay attention to your spreadsheets, campaign managers. All right, Josh, I filibustered long enough. All right. What is your uh, best secret for winning campaigns?
1: Yeah, I'll do one for each year. For, if you're a candidate, right, or a prospective candidate, it, my best advice is what you do before you run for office is more important than what you do when for, when you run for office, mm. honestly. I think I was talking to one guy a while ago that's, you know, I'm moving and I'm interested in running for office in my community. And the first thing I said is, okay, what you need to do is be a member of your community. Go up at stuff, right? Do things. Don't do it in a way where you're like, hi, I'm here, I'm running for Congress or state representative or whatever, right? Just, you know, I was like, hey, you go to church? I don't care what church, right? If you, if you don't wanna go to church, go to something else on Saturday or Sunday or whatever, right? But go to community things and be a part of your community. It's like really, it's really important. And eventually, if you do that, people will recognize you and you will have a base of support because they know that you care about the community, right? And the second thing I'd say is tracking information is really important, right? What you want to know, write down people you meet that might be helpful, right? Like for future reference, right? Keep your Google contacts or your phone contacts or whatever. Keep them up to date. That's going to be the basis of your launch. If you don't have that, then someone's going to have to do a lot of work to rebuild it. And that is bad. That's just wasted time, right? So like information tracking is really important. All right, here's my staff advice. I think the one one really positive thing over the years to what you're talking about budgets and stuff, there's so many avenues for training now for staff, whether that's the National Democratic Training Committee, whether that's just like the DLCC are doing with training caucus staff and other campaign staff, you know, all kinds of organizations do lots of training every day. So the level of that skill is better than it ever used to be at every level. What I would say is the biggest problem I see sometimes is, listen, staff member, new staff member. At some point, your candidate is going to want to do something that you think is objectively a waste of time. That's like they're going to it may be scheduling. It may be I want everything to look like this, whatever it is. Right. And you're not going to want to do it. My best advice is just do it. Like it's their name on the thing. Like they're on the ballot. Just do it. You will spend more time not wanting to do it than you will if you just do it and move on. And here's, and really, this is why, this is really important. This is great your general advice, not your, just for campaigns, but like for yeah. people in jobs all over the place. Right. Your, well, for campaign specifically, your candidate's attitude, state of mind, energy level are going to be more important than all kinds of other things that you're working on over the course of the day, right? Oh. As a campaign manager, that is one of the biggest things you're managing. And having your candidate comfortable and have confidence in what you're doing is, so vitally important that it is easy to throw that away because you're overworked and you have eight things to do. And this is just the ninth thing to do. And you don't feel like doing it because you don't think it's going to make an impact. That doesn't matter, right? Do a little analysis. And if it's going to take you more time to fight about it than it is going to do it, then just do it. It's really fine. It's probably not going to be that big of a deal. Now, that's not going to be everything. Sometimes you need to say, you need to have a real conversation about, if we do it like this, these are what the consequences are going to be and they're actually going to hurt our ability to win. Fair enough, right? Like those things happen. But when they say pick your battles, that's what I'm talking about. And pick your battles doesn't mean fight every battle. It probably means don't fight very many at all and just concentrate on the things that are going to make a big impact. And if your candidate wants to do something, that is just going to make them more comfortable and up their energy level just do it
0: that's really fantastic and the idea of your sort of as a campaign manager it's true i just gave a plea to to a technocratic approach right pay attention to the budget and i stand by that but you're right that you're also kind of the in-residence staff psychologist and you are very much trying to help facilitate your candidate your the principal in the operation and their state of mind and them being at their best that's your job is for them to be at their best it's true if you're a campaign manager it's true if you're a chief of staff one of the best pieces of advice i got when i became a chief of staff in congress was you need to have you need to spread the weight a little bit you can't always be the land of no and so it's closely related to what you're saying that You know, your person, your principal, your member of Congress is going to have 15 ideas in a day. And, you know, if you're lucky and you're working for someone who's good, the majority of them, like 10 or 11 of them, might be good ideas. And then there are going to be three that are like you described, like, this is a waste of time. This isn't great. And then there's one that's going to be downright poisonous for your ability to succeed. And what you have to do is not just kind of acquiesce and go, hey, it's their career, it's their life. Go along with the stuff that's kind of eh, you also have to manage the stuff that's definitively bad. And sometimes it is your job to go to them and say, Hey boss, here's why I want to argue with you about this. And sometimes what you need to do is outsource that. And it's really useful to have a little campaign or candidate kitchen cabinet that you can turn to people who have a strong, long-standing relationship with your principal. And you can say, Hey, you call them up and you say, "Hey, look, my boss wants to do this. I'm really concerned about it. Could you talk to them for me?" And you kind of rotate that so they're you don't become the nag, and that's really important for managing your own relationship with the principal. All right, yeah, that is that that is fun. You know what? You're making me think that we should do a show just for campaign <laughs> professionals, just for campaign managers, and we'll get like a little panel. And everyone will be required to not just give advice, but to give an example of when they've screwed it up themselves. That'll be a fun show for another time. In the meantime, Josh Handelman, thanks so much for all of your wisdom from your longstanding experience, not just in fundraising, but especially in fundraising. Best of luck in your new enterprise. People would do very well if they're looking to win some campaigns to check you out. What's the name of your business?
1: Sure. It's Accelerate Political Advisors at AcceleratePolitical.com. You can hit the contact form there. All
0: right. Master of Campaigns, Josh Handelman. thank you very much.
1: All right. Thanks, Matt. I'll talk to you soon.